Hey everyone, and welcome to the Joseph Wells Podcast. I'm your host, Joseph Wells. This is the second episode of my series on national service, where I'll be exploring the idea from a variety of angles through a number of conversations with experts. At the end of March, I'll publish a 15,000-word essay on the topic as part of David Perel's Rite of Passage Fellowship. My guest today is Jervis Tan, a Singapore native and current student at Santa Monica College in Los Angeles. Jervis is the co-founder of Undertide Apps, a company that matches talented high school students to fulfilling and challenging technical projects. As a citizen of Singapore, Jervis served conscription, or mandatory military service, in the Singapore Armed Forces. He shares his experiences with conscription, his thoughts on the importance of sharing meals, the intersection of books with experience, and much more. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Jervis Tan, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on, man. Yeah, of course. I'm happy to share whatever experience I've had with everyone. Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited to speak with you. So last week, I had a conversation with Deepun Patel, and mm-hmm. he was very big on, on national service. But his perspective was a little bit different because he volunteered to serve in India and he only did it for a few months and it wasn't military. So I'm sure his perspective will differ quite a bit from yours. But before we really get into it, I just want to give our listeners a quick background. Um, So you and I also met through Rite of Passage, David Perel's online writing course. And I think Mm -hmm. my introduction to you was when I read your piece about how you moved from Singapore to the United States for college. And I was intrigued with the way you framed your decision because you knew it wasn't the safe choice, but you say that you've always kind of made the risky bets and they've, they've paid off for you. And I identify with that, so I, I appreciate that uh, mindset. Can you talk a little bit about the factors contributing to that decision and how you ended up in California for college? Yeah, absolutely, sure. Um, well, Joe, when I needed to figure out what co- what I want college to look like, I thought to myself, where could I be at a place where I could have as many interesting conversations with as many interesting people as possible? And the big reason I moved out here is really because you have to acknowledge one thing, and that is um, California and much of universities in the U.S. Um, draws, you know, really the most brilliant minds throughout the world. There are lots of people who grew up, you know, watching Hollywood movies and TV shows thinking that someday they want to move here because, you know, they use these products and they know they're made, you know, they were somehow kind of made in the U S sure. And, um, the big draw over here, essentially what, and what I'm getting to is you have some of the smartest people, thinking, growing up and thinking to themselves, hey, I want to move here. And, you know, some of them end up here. And um, similarly for, you know, different parts of the U.S., there are people who, you know, grew up in the Midwest or in the in the South or, you know, all over the U.S. thinking to themselves, you know what, I'm going to move to California and I'm going to make a life out of myself. Essentially what I'm saying is being able to move to California, whether or not you're coming from overseas or you're coming from within the U.S., it takes skin in the game. Like, you're not here to play around. Um, and when you talk to these people, you get this sense of ingenuity and energy that 
you, you really just do not get just anywhere else. And um, when I had to make this decision, I knew I was, I'm older than most of my, my, my peers, of course, as a result of my service and um, bears other choices I've made along the way in my life. Um, and I thought to myself, yeah, that's kind of what I want because I've got these stories that I can share, these series of um, experiences that sort of, I guess you can call quote unquote advantage over like, you know, the average person. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just want to come here and learn and play in traffic and, you know, every day <laughs> feel dumb. Do you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, I love that. And, you know, kudos to you because a lot of people don't want to put themselves in situations where they feel uncomfortable, like you said, you know, play in traffic. And so you, you talked about having skin in the game. Can you, can you speak to that a little bit more? Like what, what was the risk of coming here versus staying in Singapore? Was it monetary? Was it um, pushback from your family? You know, what, what were the, the risks and the, the skin in the game that, that you had to come here? I think a big part of it was really just the monetary bits of it and, you know, being really removed from what is a comfortable social life um, back home. Because the thing is, after I moved out here, I literally, like, the only friends I've had are, like, people i met on the internet. On like okay. and that's the first thing like you know you just sort of have to figure out how to build up a social life on your own and i think right now that's the biggest thing for me um second thing is of course um the monetary stuff so um if i went to school in in in, in singapore it would cost me um and i'm and i'm not i'm not even trying to be hyper hyperbolic over here it would cost me literally um 10x less wow. um and you know, but of course that that being said, if you look at these things on paper, then the easy decision is always to you know just stay in school in um, Singapore. But I look at sort of the advantages I I've had, and I guess it's sort of like playing to my own privilege as well as you know I I worked in tech, I got lucky, you know, in between, and I I have that the means to do it, and if I have the means to do it and if that and if that is what I really want, which is, you know, being around really energetic people, I I see it as an opportunity cost I'm willing to pay. Yeah, that's that's a good way to look at it. So do you think that you know, college here is gonna be ten X the cost? Will you get ten mm-hmm. X the education? Will you get ten X the network? What what sets it apart from Singapore? Well, I think it's hard to really quantify, you know, these things. Um, but as of this current moment, because, you know, I haven't been in college long enough to really give a very good answer on this. Um, I think it's 10x really in terms of conversations I, I, will, I will have. And the education itself wouldn't come from, you know, what, I, what classes I take. Right. I think primarily speaking, the, I mean, over the last two days, I've met uh, Will Manning, who was our course manager on Rite of Passage. I've met yeah. um, this guy, Will Smithling, on Twitter, who I've been following for almost, I would say, like eight years now on Twitter. Okay. Um, in person, finally. Uh, and I've learned so much from them um, that I, I just, didn't, I just didn't, couldn't really get out of, out of school either. 
So what I'm saying is um, taking really the exchange, like sort of blending in the people I get to talk to, not just, you know, people I mean in school, but also people who live here uh, with, you know, the things I'm actually learning in school. I, I bet that's going to that's gonna show its value way down the road. I don't know what that is yet. Um, with most things in life, you don't really see its full benefits until, um, you know, you move further down the road and you look back in hindsight. Um, sure. Steve Jobs had a famous quote about that. Like you can only connect the dots looking backwards. Um, and that's the, that's the way I feel about being in the army too. Like when I was going through boot camp and when I was, you know, there, I, I hated it. Like I, I, I couldn't say I enjoyed every single moment. There are great moments, but there were moments where I really didn't want to do it. I didn't want to deal with it. I, I felt like, you know, I felt pretty bad about myself, but now in hindsight, I knew that was for something bigger. That, yeah, that, that makes sense. And I think a lot of times we can't see what's going to come from our effort that we're putting in today. And it, mm -hmm. the, the rewards might not come for three years or five years or even 10 years, you know, but I think taking these calculated risks like you're talking about and putting yourself in uncomfortable situations, uh, even not knowing specifically what you might get out of it, I, I think there is a big upside there. So I, I like what you're doing. So Yeah, and it's not just that. I, I just don't think people are doing enough of, you know, when we talk about mindfulness and stuff like that, I don't think people today are doing enough of reflecting. Like, you, you're going to go through a bad day. You're going to go through a good day. But the greatest thing you can do for yourself is to is to sit down and reflect and think to yourself, okay, so how has this negative, ex negative experience shaped me? How can it shape me positively? Right. Or if you get a really positive experience, you think to yourself, okay, this might actually be harmful for me. Like I might actually breed some like hubris from it. Like how do I manage um, what my experiences in life does to me in the grand scheme of things? I think that's really important. Um, that's one thing I did more in the army because really after you're done with like an exercise or you're done running about, you really have nothing to do. It's dark. So, yeah. So do you have a, a set process around reflecting? Because I, I think that's something that, like you said, most people probably don't do any reflecting. Um, they're uncomfortable with silence, sitting alone with their thoughts, being alone in general. But I think it's it's really important. So I'm interested if you have a specific process that you follow to reflect? I wouldn't say there any process. Um, I, I think it's more like shaping up your routines in life to, to really allow that to happen. So the one big thing after I left um, as a trainee in the army, I um, started a journaling habit. Um, there was something I did last year. So um, I sort of had a structure where I read this book. It's basically a daily book by uh, Leo Tolstoy. It's called A Calendar of Wisdom. Okay. Of it. Yeah. Um, so, and it is just, you know, um, a bunch of aphorisms that Tolstoy creates and he adds his own commentary on top of it. Um, some of it's incredibly spiritual, um, sometimes even religious. Um, but yeah, I, I, I look at them all the same. I try to extract um, sort of spiritual lessons out of it and I write a little a little reflection every day and at the bottom of this offset reflection, which directly addresses the content of the, of the, of the page, I write about how my lesson that I've learned from this page could apply to 
the experiences I'm currently experiencing. And um, that, has, that has helped a lot because I think um, a big part of getting started on journaling or getting started on um, reflecting on your life is really, you know, getting, getting started, getting the opening momentum and having a daily book like that. Um, it's, it's like getting a, a nice prompt to, to get you thinking, to get you flowing. And once you write, you know, your reflection about the page, you can start thinking about how it applies to your life. Absolutely. That's, that's a great way to do it. And I, I do the same thing with a different book. I use the daily stoic by oh, Ryan nice. holiday, but mm. yeah, same, same kind of thing. It's, it's a one pager and I read it and kind of just do a quick reflection of how it applies to my life and the, the problems that I'm facing at the time. And I have a friend that, that does the same thing. And just about every day we'll send each other a picture of what we wrote so we can kind of um, give each other feedback. And it's, it's nice to, you know, have this place where you can capture your own thoughts and then get a close friend's feedback on, on what you're thinking. So uh, I, I really like yeah. that process. So I know from, I know from other conversations that we've had that you served conscription in Singapore. Can you Mm -hmm. explain what conscription is and how it works in Singapore? Yeah, sure. So typically speaking, when you turn 18 and this is right after high school, um, I guess that's the equivalent in the U S you get, um, sent a letter and it tells you to show up at this place for your uh, medical screening. So, you know, they take your blood and all that and they do a bunch, they run a bunch of physical tests on you. And, um, and they also do an IQ test of sorts um, to sort of determine um, what your skill levels, like, what, where your inclinations are. Um, and also sort of ask you what your preferences is, like what do you, like what do you want to serve as, you know, okay. um, doing a conscription. But just to be absolutely clear, so no one's really jaded by the fact that I, I'm, I'm sort of suggesting some form of optionality here. Um, they, they say that it is just uh, expression of interest and, right, and ha- does not have a direct, excuse me, bearing on where you end up. Okay. So, um, you know, just sort of pass through the system. And then one day they kind of just show up, like, tell you to show up on this day to um, an island off the coast of Singapore. And that's when boot camp starts. Um, so you go through about, oh, this is for people who do the army, by the way. So like, remember I said, I talked about the, uh, the physical classifications. So, yes. um, if you're classified as, um, medically combat fit, you do boot camp. Um, if you sort of had a dislocated shoulder or you had like some kind of like physical condition, you still do boot camp, but you do a lighter version of it. Okay. Um, and then if you are deemed like um, medically combat unfit, then you go to this place called HRC, um, which we call the Human Resource Center. And they basically become, uh, they serve as um, essentially clerks that, that really drive the back end of this entire national service um, infrastructure. So everyone and, serves just in different capacities based on ability? Um, that is correct. Everyone serves. Every Singaporean male serves in the army. Uh, sir, not in the army. In the in some level of military service, and um, there's also there's also stuff like um, firefighting and um, the police force. Like, okay, they also take a big chunk of their uh, manpower from the conscription act. Okay, 
So just to be clear, you said every male, women are not required to serve? Yeah, women are not required to serve. Okay. So yeah. you, you go to this island for boot camp. How long does that last? What does it look like? And where do you go afterwards? Yeah, so um, boot camp is typically anywhere between two and a half weeks to three months. Oh, just two and a half weeks. Two and a half months, sorry. <laughs> two and a half months to three months. Um, it's, uh, it's actually not as bad because um, I think in most other countries, you kind of go off to boot camp and you never see your family throughout the entire duration of boot camp, right? Right. Um, but because Singapore is really small, you can totally go home. So um, we spent our first two weeks um, – two to three weeks in the island. We don't leave because um, we're going through like sort of adjustment phases. So it's really intense. You know, there's a lot of yelling. It's a lot of push-ups. There's a lot of like stranding your bed and like arranging a locker a specific way. Mm-hmm. Basically everything you've heard about boot camp, all elements of it are present. Um, really sort of like whipping um, 18-year-old guys into shape, <laughs> I guess. Um, and you march around, you know, uh, base camp, and your drills must be sharp and you know your bearings must be must be on the top of its game you know you spend a lot of your evenings you know doing your laundry and and shining your boots it's it's pretty much standard um and then every weekend we kind of get to go home after the first uh three weeks of adjustment period i guess and within this um basic training phase you know you learn a bunch of stuff like uh you learn sort of how to fire a weapon, um, personal defense, um, urban operations training, because Singapore is really built up, so we, we do a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Um, we do force marches, so, you know, kind of carrying our full gear and kind of like walking around the island. Um, and also throw a grenade, like that's that's apparently a rite of passage too. So, um, <laughs> that, uh, but, uh, yeah. And, you know, you, and by the end of it, essentially, they're of basic. It tries to ensure that every soldier who passes through the system knows a how to fire a rifle, b how to throw a grenade, c how to fight a you know a conventional warfare jungle warfare setting, how to like you know go fight leaps and bounds. That's uh, that's c d like how to maneuver your way around an urban environment, and d um know how to fight without your without your weapon essentially um and last but not least walk really long distances really heavy equipment so the sort of the thing that's sort of wraps this entire thing up is this um i'm trying to figure out what's this number in miles um 16 mile it's a 16 mile um sort of march with full gear um and uh into into what is your graduation parade. Um, oh, okay. And that's, you usually march to a place called the floating platform in Singapore where your family and friends are all waiting. So you've been marching all day um, from the night to early morning and they're all waiting there. You go there, there's a huge parade and then you throw your little cap and that, that that's the end of basic. And, um, you know, people go to different places following that. And because we're a conscription army, um, some people go immediately to command school, um, while others um, go to different different units, essentially, or different formations, and they go through vocational training. So, for example, and this is something I'm more familiar with because I'm from that formation, 
um, if you go to Signals, you go to you go to the uh, Signals Institute and you learn how to like operate radios and stuff like that before you get posted to your your actual combat unit. Um, for me, I did command school and I specifically went to the Warrant Officer Corps. So I, I was training to become a sergeant and I did that for another six months. Okay. So it sounds like the conclusion of boot camp where you march into this area with all your family waiting and you throw your caps, that, that really sounds like a rite of passage. Yeah. Um, my, there's a, there's a term in Singapore, um, we call it um, a boys to men. A is basically just a colloquial um, Singaporean term. Uh, so it's the, the reason why people, you know, throw that term around like a boys to men, right, is that it, conscription is so part of our culture that um, we definitely see like every male's right of passage to becoming quote unquote men. Mm-hmm. Like definitely not in a hyper masculinity sense. There's no like, Ill, there's no like Ill intent from like, you know, having a term like this, but right. really it's more of a route of passage for a male into adulthood. Uh, my, my dad views it this way. Um, my granddad felt the same way about my dad. And um, I think the culture has sort of accepted that some parts, I guess has kind of accepted that. Yeah. Um, putting a person through boot camp. Um, really shapes them to become more responsible um, over themselves. For sure, it's not like a 100% thing. There are going to be people who, you know, still are stuck in their ways. But Mm -hmm. for many people, I've realized, and and that's included my friends that I went to school with, um, they've really changed a lot since, you know, being in boot camp or being in service. Yeah, that that makes sense. Just the discipline alone, I think, can can do that to people. So essentially, you're taking an 18 year old, uh, I don't know if child is the right term, but let's, let's say child and, you know, putting them through this two and a half to three months. And then on the other end, you go through this rite of passage where you are now a contributing adult member of Singapore society, right? That's correct. And it seems like this would have a real unifying effect for the country uh, because everybody's doing it. Um, and I imagine it has more of a unifying effect in a smaller country like Singapore, where everyone's kind of working together to defend your homeland potentially. Now, if you contrast that with the United States, where military service might mean being sent to a faraway country where the direct mm-hmm. benefit to the United States is not as clear, I could see how conscription might not be unifying, but more divisive. So can you kind of speak to in Singapore, is it unifying? Uh, if so, how? And do you think that could apply to a bigger country like the United States, or do you think uh, that would not be a good thing to do? Mm. Well, yeah, it has a unifying effect just by just by virtue of boot camp being common for every Singaporean male. Like, I would be able to walk on the street or like sit down like at a coffee shop and you know meet a random stranger and made a joke about. And made a joke with a reference to you know something standard that happens in boot camp, and he will get it. Mm. Like I, I know for sure he's gonna get it because he, you know, everyone has sort of been through essentially the same thing. Um, and that's kind of the the, the unifying effect, really. And um, the idea that every Singaporean male has a shared common experience is just. Um, I think I don't. I can't fully. Um, 
understand it the way you can because you know I'm part of the I'm part of the observed party over here. Sure. But uh, yeah, sure. Um, a great amount of jokes and cultural references come out of really having a shit experience. Um, whether or not it applies to the United States, I have to say I am not um, familiar enough with the U.S. Army system to comment. But the way I see it is um, being in service in that way where you get placed in boot camp with, and you don't really get to choose who you be with, mm-hmm. um, first and foremost, um, it's a great equalizer. Sure. It, it really, it's, it's a, it has a great equalizing effect. Um, some people, you might think Singapore is a really small country and people don't really, you know, even if you live in your own bubble universe, you don't live in it for too long. But there are people who literally live in their bubble universe for 18 years of their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you, you get, but you get put into boot camp, and you just with all these people, right. With all, from all walks of life and from all um, races, from all religions, from all, you know, socioeconomic um, um, statuses. Mm-hmm. And um you just got to work on the same thing together. You have the same damn mission. You got to look out for each other. And you realize that it doesn't matter like how you grow up at that point. You just need to find a way to survive together or like talk to each other or get along and be friends. Cause if you don't, then bootcamp's going to be miserable. Right. Um, that's, I think if, if you're talking about unifying effects, um, I think I would reframe it as an, as, an equalizing effect, like it's an opportunity for people to really challenge their way of seeing, you know, people of a different socioeconomic status, essentially. Sure. Um, and I, and I see that, I think, I think I can say that for sure about, um, you know, implementing such a system, regardless of whether or not it's the United States or, you know, a different country. Um, cause you know, what I've learned from my friends here is you can grow up a very specific way in the U S and never meet someone off like a specific vector of say socioeconomic status or like, um, race or like religion. And, um, and that's bizarre to me. Right. And you, you would think Singapore is a completely integrated place on two vectors, which is uh, race and religion. Cause we have even policies in place that tries to put place everyone together. So there isn't much racial segregation. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not perfect and you still get to, we still get an effect when we go into army. So I, I bet if this ever kind of like comes around in the U S it's going to be, it's going to be huge. It's, it's going to be huge and it's going to be a culture shock for a lot of people. Um, and I don't know if it's ever going to be politically popular. It's a really big country. So having a sweeping policy like that's never kind of going to, take off like I'm, I'm so pessimistic on that but mm-hmm. yeah for sure unifying in an equalizing sense definitely so I, I tend to agree with you on it never being politically popular especially in in a country so large but like i was talking about with my last guest um and like you kind of briefly mentioned in the united states you can grow up in in quite a bubble and never yeah. know somebody of even a different race or socioeconomic status or something as simple as growing up in New York and not ever knowing anybody from California because it's so far away. Right. So you Mm -hmm. kind of develop these, these stereotypes in your head of, Oh, this, this person from this area is this way. 
and it's really mm-hmm. nothing more than a stereotype. It's not necessarily true. Um, but this mm-hmm. this equalizing effect of making everyone at a certain age go through the same thing and kind of have this shared struggle. I mean, you you mentioned that some of boot camp kind of sucked and you hated it, right? But I think going mm-hmm. through that with other people, going through this thing that's really challenging and, and not always fun does have a good way of, of equalizing and, and bringing people together. And I think one of the important things about spending that time together with other people is sharing meals. And I know that you recently tweeted and, and actually mentioned earlier that um, one of your goals for this year is to fill your meals with as many interesting conversations as possible. Yeah. So I think I think that conver- connections are made over meals. And when I think back to like high school and college cafeterias, uh, a lot of bonding took place in those spaces and, and over meals. And even now at work, I get closer with my coworkers by sharing meals with them. But mm-hmm. what those situations don't force is sharing a meal with people who hold different perspectives or, or come from different backgrounds. Yeah. Um, so did you find that um, during your time serving conscription, you, you shared meals with a, ri- a wide variety of people and uh, could could you just speak to that a little bit and then kind of tie it back to why you're trying to have um, meals with as many different people as possible now that you're in California? Sure. Um, I guess I'm not sure if it's necessarily the right data point to use over here because um, Singapore essentially is a very small place. So even as diverse as we become, you know, it's not going to be that contrasting. Uh, but yeah, there are definitely people I, 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 that grew up very differently from me. So um, the reason meals are so powerful is for some reason, people let their guard down when they're eating. I don't know why. But um, so when I was a platoon sergeant in my, in my unit, I really wanted to know my, 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 the guys I managed in a more personal level. Because I think um, a lot of us took some kind of personal sacrifice to spend, you know, five days a week in a in a base camp. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are times where I just kind of sit down and you know innocently just start asking like uh, one of my guys like how was your weekend, and things will come out, and I would think I would find out stuff about them. So I had this soldier who you know had trouble in his family and he would tell me about how he grew up and and it sort of hit me because you you would think that Singapore is a rich country like people you know generally have housing and you know there isn't people with like complicated family struggles but they exist and that was completely out of my realm of how I grew up because I was I was privileged too I um I very early on went to a school where, you know, most people, you know, are generally well off. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, being able to sit down with him and it, it helps me realize to not take my own family for granted. That's the first thing. Sure. And also it helped me realize that, Hey, you know, I've got to pay more attention to this guy. He's not like if, if my, if my guys aren't in the right frame of mind, like they're not going to do the best work they can. Um, so Yeah. Sorry, what did you say to tie it back to again? Um, your your goal to fill your meals with as many interesting conversations as possible this year. Uh, yeah, okay. So um, I, I don't want to go to, into too much detail about what the, the stuff he, he what, what, what specifically other stuff he shared 
um, with me, but, um, yeah, the reason why I want to have more conversations too, is because I realize I'm on surface. You never realize, you never, you never notice what someone else can teach you, Mm. but when you're eating, right, you're spending that time eating anyways. And if you could be talking to someone, um, you might stumble upon something that changes your life. Um, and I've, and, and, and for me, that was really having a conversation with that particular soldier in general, because I realized I was looking, I was looking at, you know, very surface level stuff and I wasn't really digging deep enough. Um, I wasn't in trenches enough, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and I talked to him and he taught me so much. Like he, he taught me, he, he told me about um, how um, the system in Singapore catches like people like him who, you know, struggle to, to find housing. Mm-hmm. And cause he was brought up by a single mother. Um, I learned about, you know, all the stuff he did to sort of like help pay for um, stuff at home. Um, it's, it, I guess it's more right now, the way I'm, I'm talking about it, it's more, um, it's all about its benefits on a more principled level than necessarily, you know, about learning about something specific. But what I essentially I'm saying is you never know what you're going to get out of a conversation, especially when you have it over food and people are more willing to invite you into their lives. If you do it over food, cause they're, they're doing it anyways. Right. Yeah. So, it's- Sorry, continue. Yeah, so I just wanna, I just wanna be able to sit down, and really tease stuff out. Like, if we're both gonna have our own meals anyway, like let's 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 talk. Let's let's see what we can learn from each other. And when you allow that to happen, um, it's a lot of magic can happen. Yeah, I, I really like that. And I don't know what specifically it is about meals, but it seems that people either, you know, they, they kind of just let their guard down a little bit. And I think that's where connections are made. And it sounds like where empathy is, is developed, right? Because you had this conversation with this guy who was kind of sounds like he was living a little bit of a struggle and you had no idea about that and you hadn't been exposed to it. But in, in talking to him, you kind of got a feel for what his life was like, and then you could empathize with him a little bit. So I think that's, that's pretty powerful. So I, I was reading through your website a little bit and one of the articles that I really liked was conversations with Vikasan Virasami. I'm probably not pronouncing yeah. that correctly, but um, so in that article, you kind of talk about the purpose of arguments and there was one quote here that really struck me. So I'm just going to read it. You said mm-hmm. when caught in a heated argument with someone holding incompatible opinions, remember that intellectual pursuits are not zero sum and winning is nonsense. Arguments are an opportunity for people to convince each other that their perspectives have place in the world. When viewed from that perspective, you are more likely to form a more complete view on an issue. And if it requires decision or an action to be made, a compromise becomes an outcome worth negotiating for. So I I really like this because I think it's an idea that's kind of been lost on much of America. And Mm -hmm we're in a time where the media is dividing us based on party lines. And, and what I mean by this is that if, if you take an individual who voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016 mm-hmm. and you take an individual who voted for Donald Trump in 2016 mm-hmm. and those two people sit down over a beer or a meal or something like that and, and they don't mm-hmm. know who the other po- person voted for, mm-hmm. they're probably going to be able to connect on something, right? Maybe mm-hmm. even agree on some political policies. So where the media paints a picture of this zero sum game, uh, the Mm -hmm. reality isn't as black and white. The reality is that 
we're all Americans. We can all connect over something, whether that's our family or where we were brought up or, um, you know, how we all want to have a job and put food on the table. And, and like you said so perfectly in your quote, a compromise is an outcome worth negotiating for. So mm-hmm. what I'm interested in is, is how does Singapore differ from the United States in terms of polarization? And do you think that conscription plays any part in that? Um, yeah, so my views on this specifically about my country would not reflect, I guess, um, you know, the rest of it. Um, but I think Singapore has an interesting history because a lot of people in the U.S. include it, view it as authoritarian, which it absolutely was very early on in its um, in its inception. Um, and part of that, um, part of the attitude has sort of bled through even today as we become a um, extremely developed nation. And the reason, the the strange thing is our elections. Um, the ruling party that has been in charge since the very beginning, like wins by a huge margin, like 60%, mm-hmm. 65%. And to say that there is, um, I don't really see a polarizing effect right now, um, but I definitely see it coming um, near in the future because I feel like we're kicking the can down the road over and over and telling ourselves, hey, look, everything's great. The buildings are beautiful. The GDP is great. Um, life is pretty good. Healthcare is good. Education is good. People are looking at the numbers, things in paper, and tapping themselves on the on the back and say, "You know what? Things are great." Mm-hmm. And no one, no one really has a conversation around around these things. And hence, I think the polarizing effects don't really come out that much. But if you look at really the spectrums of where political discussions kind of take place, you can see that. Um, something's coming. So um, Singapore's um, controversies are, I think, a lot more acute to Americans than 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 to us. So one of the controversies, recent controversies we had, was around this um, celebrity, um, basically brown faced and on a campaign ad, mm-hmm. um, and that sparked a huge debate about like race, and that was as contra- controversial as we can get. <laughs> um, um so yeah i think because we're really small and everyone and i guess kind of like the 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 kind of pseudo um what do you call that oh dear i'm blanking on the name (laughs) but anyways uh yeah um but i guess because education is nationalized and everyone sort of like sits through a little school, a little class called social studies, and it's a little bit of propaganda. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, like it's it's basically a, an opportunity for the government to tell you like why they made the decisions they made. Okay. Um, uh, that's kind of also a reason why everyone sort of accepts the status quo. Um, and I, I don't think the system's sustainable. I think it was it worked well um, many decades ago, but I feel like. Uh, it, something needs to change, but uh, yeah, I don't think I don't really think the military has any bearing on um, on political conversations. Um, I think people always tie back their political affiliations and opinions to their personal lives, which people sure. tend to leave out when they're in the army. 
um, they kind of put that aside and really just focus on what they need to do. And most people, when you're on, when you're on conscription, you really you just want to serve and like you know go away. Yeah. Um. You know, you'll be lucky if you know you don't get hurt or permanently injured. Right. Um, right. And so, yeah, I would say no. I, I, I it, it doesn't it doesn't do anything for our political um, discourse. Okay, that's fair. So when when you're saying that you see it, you see the country kind of eventually moving in a direction of polarization. What what would cause that? Um, I would say when when the buildings start looking nice and when numbers start looking great and things on paper um, don't look as good. Okay. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like um, it kind of forces us to 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 grasp for an identity. Um, Singapore has a burgeoning art scene that honestly, if you ask me, is underfunded. Because um, I know this because when I was in uh, I was in high school, I hung, hung out with a lot of film students and, and musicians. So I'm, I'm I'm very sympathetic to their lives. Um, Singapore tends to invest in things that return good numbers, and I feel like we're getting blindsided by all these things that are measurable, that things that are measurable tend not to get any attention. And we're just really kicking the can down the road. And one day when these things start to matter, because the way I like to think about system is an ecosystem, right? Like you need a, you, you kind of need everyone doing as many things as possible to reach a great outcome. Um, until the day that happens, I feel like um, there's going to be some kind of reversion to the mean. I don't know what that look like. Um, Fortunately for us, um, that looks that doesn't look like it's happening anytime soon. But um, I do hope that you know it happens sooner rather than later. Because if once once you start having a conversation, that's when you can start changing things. If you don't, then you know it's going to be worse when it happens. Sure. Yeah, that that makes sense. And yeah, I I, I like that. So. Just quickly, I want to jump back to your time, you know, serving mm-hmm. in the military. And I don't remember where where I got this. I don't know if it was a conversation we had or something I read of yours, but you you talked about reading a lot of books while you were mm-hmm. serving. Is that was that accurate? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do you, yeah. do you think service helped you to mature and better prepare you for college um, and then a career? By by so, way of having having a lot of time to read books and reflect and, and and just grow up a little bit, you know, be a few years older. Oh yeah, oh oh yeah, definitely. If not if not the books, even the the entire experience, really. Um, I I learned a lot about what being a leader is like. You know, I learned that um, stuff that you know. I guess the reason why books just became a force multiplier. I like had. I had words that I could read and immediately relate to because you could read all the books in the world. Right. And if you don't have relevant experience to mm-hmm. see how that really translates to real life, like you wouldn't really understand. You're just reading a book. It's just words, but being able to live um, sort of a life as a soldier and as a, and eventually a leader, um, it led me to be able to apply a lot of the things I was reading to my actual uh, work. So what I mean by that is, um, you know, for example, if you're looking at, um, if you're reading at 48 Laws of Power, 
Oh, that's a really cynical book, by the way. Yeah, I um, read it. <laughs> <laughs> um, there are some bits of it that you sort of go like, oh, that was what's being done to me. Yeah. Or like, oh, you know, th- I'm doing that to someone else. That's bad. Um, being able to read a book and sort of like apply it in real life is is a lot easier to understand what um, what things you should get out of it. And to 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 go back to how like services sort of like help in age a couple of years, I think one big thing about um, is what what people always like to talk about like military work ethic, right? Mm-hmm. And that is like um, the latest you'll be at a meeting is five minutes early. That's the that's a popular. Um, right. sort of um, rendition of that um, and you know the the entire idea that nothing really gets done until it gets done like passing it down to someone else passing it off to someone else is not getting it done even if you have to delegate you need to follow up and you need to close the loop um, that's that's the military war ethic um, you know you 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 build you build a sense of core values um, really the big three that we always talk about is loyalty um, it's not just, it's, we're not even talking about like lo- being loyal to country. It's kind of like being loyal to your, your team and your fellow men. Um, you know, a sense of duty, like knowing that you're here to do something important, not here to sort of like play around. And of, of course, respect, like respecting everyone around you, um, regardless of rank. Um, and one thing I really like to talk about is I feel like being in the army is sort of like getting a master's degree and getting stuff done. Uh, like, okay. uh, um, you, yeah, because if, if, if no one moves, nothing happens. Um, and it's so important to, you, you learn the importance of sort of extreme preparation and, you know, valuing that and being able to operate optimal, optimally when you're under pressure, you know, like we're in a day of peace, like Singapore army has no wars. Um, we p- perform maneuvers. We, you know, we throw up like soil and in <laughs> the air, and there's no enemy, and there's nothing to shoot at. Um, you know, we get really tired after the end of the day doing this. But um, the, you know, the the whole point of it all, the whole point of it all, really is so that we are equal to this unavoidable um, toil. So when the day comes, when, when we have to deal with a time of crisis, um, we will not flinch because we would fall back into our training. And this, 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 this rhymes and this sounds kind of like what James Clare talked about, talks about in his, in his book about habits, that habits form a, you know, a system that you fall back on. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you, 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 you learned that so much from being in the army, um, you know, through the regimentation, which is like making a bed um, every, every every morning, you you learn it from um, you know working with the other the other people in your platoon. You know, learning that you know it's not really like you, you've got a rank, but there's so much more. You, there's so much more to you know a rank than 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 anything, and you learn basically that you know. That leadership is it's not leadership does not um, is blind to really your title, right? Sure. Leadership is really just sacrifice, and it really doesn't need a badge or a banner to inspire one. And I think that that really shaped the way I uh, I saw the world, the way I sh- uh, it really shaped the way I saw my relationship with the rest of the world. And books were just a way of um, 
books. It was just a way of finding the words to, to, to describe my experience. I like that. So loyalty, duty, respect, and a master's degree in getting things done. That's fantastic. So I I think this is probably a good place to cut it, but is there anything else you'd like to share about conscription or coming to the United States or, or just anything in general? Well, I like to say though, I have had quite an amazing time out here so far meeting everyone. Um, and you know, conscription is still a thing that even gets hotly debated within Singapore itself. And, um, I think we're probably one of a very small amount, if not the only country that still does it while not being in, um, in at any sort of active war and much of the world, um, looks at us and sort of makes passes judgment that, you know, because they already have their pre-existing beliefs that Singapore is authoritarian, that the government is, you know, repressing its citizens or something. But I think um, I just wanted to, since this is a platform for and people are hearing about this, I just sure. want people to know that um, we are a country of 5.9 million people and we'll fit into a landmass that is a third the size of LA. Um, if we do not have some form of deterrence against, um, you know, any sort of physical deterrence period, um, there's a good chance that while we were industrializing or even now as we, as we exist, um, that might not last very long because the rest of the region um, are still not sufficiently developed where the cost of going to war with us um, far outweighs the economic impacts of, of their own homeland. Right. Um, so it becomes necessary to keep this in place and the government in, of Singapore still struggles really hard to keep that in place because a lot of people obviously want to abolish it too. Right. Um, so just to be absolutely clear, it's not a thing that <laughs> it's not because the government's repressing us. We, I think all Singaporeans at some visceral level understand this. Um, so just trying to add some nuance to, to this, to this uh, conversation, just in case people are thinking at the back of their heads, like, Oh, you know, this is, this is terrible. Why did they do this to you? Yeah. Of course. Yeah. I think that makes perfect sense. And I really appreciate you adding that perspective and clarity for people not familiar with it. Um, this has been a really great conversation. I enjoyed it very much and appreciate you taking the time. So Jervis, where can people find you if they want to talk more? Well, you can find me on Twitter and that is at Jervis Tan, J-U-R-V-I-S-T-A-N. Um, I think you'll, you'll help me put it in the show notes. Um, of course. That's really, really where I'm at. Um, shoot me a DM. My DMs are open. I'd love to speak to anyone. And if you live in LA, hey, let's get, let's get a meal and have a conversation. All right. Sounds good. Thanks a lot, Jervis. Awesome. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for spending your time listening to the show. If you'd like to discuss national service or anything else, shoot me a message on Twitter at Joseph C. Wells. I'd love to hear from you. And make sure to sign up for my newsletter at josephcwells.com so we can stay in touch. Until next time, take care. Thanks for listening.